Kia ora and welcome to Inside Parliament, where we discuss the political issues that we've been covering this week for One News. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm May Heron. Actually, a couple of the stories that we'll be talking about today uh, happened on Friday last week. It was a very busy Friday, uh, which started off with Simon Bridges and his travel expenses, the leak story. Let's take a look at that. Arriving in Wellington this morning, Simon Bridges in damage control. I take uh, the matters that you know, you've seen in the media today very seriously. Media reports revealing a text message he received over the leak of his travel expenses. The text made clear to me uh, that it was from the leaker. Uh, the text stated that the leaker was in the National Caucus. Here's how it all unfolded. On Monday 13 August, Simon Bridges' travel expenses were leaked to the media. Two days later, Speaker Trevor Mallard launched an inquiry. Both men then received a text message the following day. A person claiming to be the leaker cited mental health issues and pleaded for the inquiry to be dropped. August 17th, Simon Bridges contacted police with concerns for the person. Their very clear uh, view uh, in the text message uh, that there would be significant harm uh, to them. It was, I suppose, ultimately uh, an incredibly dark, uh, concerning text message. If there are indeed mental health issues, it would strike clearly that needs to be dealt with really sensitively and perhaps, uh, if that is the case, best dealt with internally. Simon Bridges says police confirmed the person had help and posed no significant risk and he and Trevor Mallard agreed the inquiry would continue. But shortly after Simon Bridges spoke to media, Trevor Mallard pulled the plug on the inquiry. He said it had been confirmed to him that the leaker and texter were the same person and it was unlikely to be anyone outside the National Party. He described the person as clearly very disturbed. He said Simon Bridges disagreed with his decision. National accusing Trevor Mallard of making a U-turn. He set himself up as being the judge, the prosecutor and the jury and he's pointed his finger at 56 National MPs, half the parliament and said you are the guilty parties, go away and sort it out. National says there's no evidence the leaker is from their party and maintain they don't know who it is. They've yet to decide if they'll continue with an inquiry. So absolutely bizarre set of uh, events that unfolded on Friday. Um, it, it, for many of us who've been uh, watching and listening to uh, Inside Parliament, uh, the game of Cluedo has now gone from who done it to who the heck done it because it's cray cray. And also Bridges is pretty relentless about this, isn't he? He wants to find out who did it. Do you think it was the right thing for Trevor Mallard to actually pull the pin on it? Well, the Nats uh, came out and said it was a major U-turn by Trevor Mallard, and I somewhat agree with them on that. I mean, Trevor Mallard, he had all of the facts uh, leading up to the day before he pulled the pin. So the day before Trevor Mallard caught off the inquiry, uh, he announced... Uh, that Michael Herring QC would be leading the investigation. So he was full steam ahead just the day before he pulled the pin. So what changed overnight or what changed uh, earlier that morning as Simon Bridges was speaking to media in order for him to pull the pin? And why won't he share that with Simon Bridges and the National Party? They still don't know, they claim, they still don't know uh, who the leaker is. Um, and now they're having to go at it alone at the expense of the taxpayer, I might add, because uh, National will be going ahead with an investigation 
um, and that will come out of the leader's budget, which is taxpayer money. So you've got Trevor Mallard who knows, you've got the police who know, uh, and yet taxpayers are having to fork out to find out um, who it is because the National Party are being kept in the dark. What do you think? And I think National Party have to carry on and find this. I mean, they made such a big kerfuffle about it at the very beginning when they called for a, a grand inquiry on this. Don't forget, they are the ones that turned this narrative, didn't they? I mean, started off about um, Simon Bridges's his spending and that National were the ones that turned this narrative into who leaked it, who leaked it, who leaked it. And so it is, I feel like they have gone down this path and they can't turn around. They have to find out who, do it, who did it because this, as soon as they decide that they're going to back out of this, they're going to look weak. They've, they've got essentially a rat somewhere and they need to know where that is and they need to, to get ahead of it because it just does not look good for Simon Bridges' leadership. And the worst part of it all is that that rat could actually be um, in the inner circle. It could be within the National Party caucus and you really can't, you don't want to be going ahead as a party um, in the political sphere uh, with p potentially a traitor amongst the ranks. The other thing is, you know, as you, as you say, National sort of kicked this whole thing off. Simon Bridges was the one who wanted the inquiry in the first place. You really have to ask whether or not he's done himself a disservice now, whether or not it's come to to bite them in the backside because now it's just blown up in their faces um, and, it, and it's just not a good look whatever the outcome. And I, I agree with you as well, this won't go away. If they don't find out who it is, can you imagine leading to election time, the, the still hanging around, I just don't think this will go away until they find out who it is and until, to be honest, the public know who it is too. And in terms of who it is, we know who it isn't, who isn't in Cabinet, should I say, and that's Claire Curran. Let's take a look at that. I have made the decision to remove Claire Curran from Cabinet. Claire Curran was the Minister for Open Government, but for the second time she's failed to be open with her diary. The Dunedin South MP was already under a cloud after she didn't declare a meeting with former Radio New Zealand boss Carol Hirschfeld, leading to this apology to the Prime Minister in March. I've apologised to the Prime Minister and I was wrong. Today, a second strike and a second apology. I just want to say that I'm very sorry for what has happened. Uh, I've let myself down, I've let the Prime Minister down, I've let uh, my government down. This time over a nighttime meeting with Derek Handley in Ms Curran's Beehive office. Mr Handley applied for the role of Chief Technology Officer and went on to be shortlisted. The issue here is that Ms Curran failed to record that meeting. Uh, that creates an impression and a perception uh, that lacks transparency and that is not something that I will tolerate, particularly from a Minister for Open Government. This also was the second time that we had such an offence from the Minister. The pair had this exchange over Twitter arranging the February meeting. How do you have a meeting in a beehive office and no staff knows what's going on? She herself acknowledges that she has not met the expectations she set herself or the expectations she has of herself as a minister in this government. Hence the reason she has offered up those two portfolios. But Ms Karen keeps her broadcasting and ACC portfolios. And I think I'm certainly being accountable and paying a fairly heavy price today. 
The Prime Minister insists she has confidence in Ms Curran, who was one of her lowest-ranked ministers and won't be replaced in Cabinet. She's been, she has been demoted from Cabinet. That is a significant response. Ministers now on notice to properly record their meetings. And as for that Chief Technology Officer role, it was due to be announced any day. The State Services Commission will now take another look at the appointment process. So that's Claire Curran out of the Cabinet. Now, look, this is her second mistake, which I think is worth mentioning because I don't know, to be honest, whether the same repercussions would have happened if this had only happened once. But this was the second time. The first time was obviously with Carol Hirschfeld when they met at Astoria and she failed to also then tell officials about that meeting. But put simply, this is just not a good look for a government that says it wants to be an open government. Absolutely. And, I mean, this would have been frustrating for the Prime Minister, because when Claire Curran uh, made that first mistake of not declaring her meeting with Carol Hirschfeld, the Prime Minister came right in behind Claire Curran. She had her back. She sort of, you know, really supported her through that um, and said that she continued to have confidence in Claire Curran only to have it happen again. I mean, that's got to be absolutely frustrating. I'm sure she's got enough to deal with uh, in terms of baby Neve that she doesn't need to be babysitting any of her ministers. So um, Claire Curran gone from Cabinet. Um, And really, when you think about, you know, whether or not, you know, because declaring a meeting, right, it's like, is it a big deal? It's only, you know, writing it down in a diary or letting uh, your own staff know, is it a big deal? Well, yes, it is, because the rules are the rules are the rules are the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, then you can't play the game. You shouldn't be on the field. And I think it talks, it speaks to a, a pattern of behaviour as well, is that, that she obviously is working in a way that um, means that officials cannot see what she's doing. Don't forget, she used personal accounts here to set up a lot of these meetings. Now, Jacinda Ardern is adamant that that's not the problem. But what is the problem is this illusion. Again, public perception. I mean, you've got to be keeping these meetings in the public eye because you've got to be held accountable to the decisions that you make. And if you decide to hide any element of decision-making, you know, this one was the appointment of that board there, then then you're really running the risk of being um, accused of quite serious things here. And I think that's what um, Jacinda Ardern is trying to protect here, is not being accused of favouritism, is not being accused of corruption, which are really big allegations. And I think that's what can stem from not being open and transparent and not writing down meetings. That are, That's the accusations that could happen from there. And the question is why? Why, uh, why is this happening, right? And so you've got sort of two maybe potential answers. One, either the minister is naive and she just had a brain fade or two, uh, she was perhaps being tricky um, and maybe not declaring that purposefully. I mean, either way, it's not a good look. Um, and so that's seen Claire Curran out in the cold. She still has portfolios though, right? Do you think the Prime Minister should have taken everything away from her? I, I, um, ugh, it's a big call to make. Um, I was surprised that she was able to, to keep it. I mean, both the Prime Minister and Claire Curran say, you know, she's paid heavily by being um, now locked out of out of Cabinet, you know, pushed out of Cabinet, um, and that's that's penalty enough. Um, but it does leave you wondering, is, is this, this is the second strike. Three strikes and she's out completely. So um, she's on her last morning. Now, this week we've also seen Jacinda Ardern make a push um, to re-engage with business uh, and sort of get that business confidence back up. It's been a bit of an issue for them. Uh, So let's take a quick look at a feature from 1990 uh, from Business Confidence Track back then. 
What action will he take to restore business confidence? Dramatic loss in business confidence. Massive changes are needed to the Employment Relations Bill to restore confidence. They're taking the hits in the House, but it's what's happening in the business world that's got the government worried. I think it's attitude. I think that government has come in and it's come in and it's treated business adversarially um, over this last six months, and that has to change. We're not about to do things which is going to make life impossible for business. But business is feeling the pinch, politically as well as economically. ACC changes, higher taxes and the new employment law they see as potentially harmful. The government says they have nothing to fear. The changes will bring benefits. If the message is so good, why hasn't it been sold? Remember that in the business community there was always resistance in some quarters, A, to a change in government, and B, to the changes the new government would bring. Business organisations like mine are not political enemies. We are not the enemy. We want to work with government, but I think the government has taken opinion that we're on the outside of the, the tent and not on the inside. The Employment Relations Bill causing most anxiety, the government simply failed to sell it. National, meanwhile, has scored more than 100,000 hits on its website criticising the bill, showing the level of concern among businesses. In steps the Prime Minister to personally review it, and the charm offensive begins. The more detailed and complicated it is, the more mistakes you can make. So we're now going to focus on the key concerns, and I am clear that reasonable concerns can be accommodated. The Finance Minister now out to woo business. I think it's fair to say there's been inadequate communication between the government and business up to the last couple of weeks, but I think that's starting to turn around since that survey was taken. You say inadequate communication, I mean, do you take some of the blame for that? Oh, absolutely. A belated charm offensive that will continue until next month's budget. So this story obviously um, took place during the Labour government, Helen Clark's first year in government, and she faced the same sort of issues and had to sort of implore that charm offensive. Um, I mean, do you think that that sort of thing's going to work this time round for Jacinda Ardern, mate? Well, it's interesting because there are so many parallels from that piece that we saw just then to kind of the same things that we're experiencing now. Businesses going, oh my goodness, look, at we've got Labour government, we've got all these things coming in. But you're right, Jacinda Ardern this week has um, deliberately gone out and tried to, I guess, calm down businesses to say that just because Labour is in charge doesn't mean we're going to tank the economy, doesn't mean that we can't be trusted. Here are all the things that we need to do. And I do think it was quite smart of her. You know, I know it is a, yet another little advisory group, but I do think it was smart to create an advisory group made from business owners, chief executives, headed up by Christopher Luxon. I think that's a smart move from her. And I do think that it may work and it may work over time. And I think it's really important for the Sabre government. And just a quick note um, on that um, advisory group that's been set up with Christopher Luxon at, at the helm. I mean, obviously, this could potentially um, cause some, some headaches for Jacinda Ardern in that Shane Jones has again doubled down on Christopher Luxon um, just this morning even, um, saying that he's a celebrity and basically questioning whether or not he um, is the appropriate person to head uh, that advisory group. I mean, that is going to be contentious um, because of the, the working relationship that National, uh, that Labour and New Zealand First have to have. Um, and you've got the Nats saying that Shane Jones is basically giving Jacinda Ardern the middle finger 
I mean, that's the line that they're pushing, and that's not a good, that's not a sort of good um, narrative to have when you're trying to rebuild that business confidence. Is to have one of your buddies come in and just slam away at it again. And that's exactly where I think the government needs to take some control over Shane Jones. I know Shane Jones has operated as Shane Jones, but the government really needs to pull him in in some way because you cannot have a faction of the government disagreeing with the another faction of the government. And I think this is exactly where businesses start to see what they would guess is a shaky government and it's 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 shakiness it's uncertainty those are the things that businesses can't handle the most and so when you've got a government disagreeing with itself that is exactly why businesses go I don't know if I could, we can handle this here. And just for just for lulls, because this was actually quite funny. But I, um, on, in a Q and A interview, Adrian Orr, uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank, um, he sort of made a comment about um, business confidence being low because of one of the reasons being um, the number of reviews and advisory groups that have been set up. And then Jacinda Ardern goes and sets up a business advisory group um, to address the issue. <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. Now, um, moving on, we've got a track from May on rentals. Let's take a look at that. 589,000 is the estimated number of households living in rental homes. That's more than one and a half million New Zealanders. And the number of Kiwis renting is also increasing. Take a look at this. 23% of people lived in rentals in 1991. That number shooting up to 33% in 2017. As rising prices make buying and living in your own home out of reach for many. May Heron has more details on the proposed changes and how they'll affect you. Ruby Gray's only 25, but she's already had several difficult renting experiences, including big rent rises. All the landlords did was take out some parsley and paint the fence around the back. And they were like 160 bucks. Um, we're putting it up. The government says bad landlords are a minority, but our renting laws are archaic. We want to make life better for renters because at the moment it's a miserable and pretty punishing existence for many renters. It's got to be better than this. Under the proposed laws, a landlord won't be able to kick out a tenant without a reason. A minimum 90 days notice has to be given for termination rather than 42. Rent increases are limited to once a year rather than six monthly. There'll be no more letting fees in rental bidding. More tenants will be allowed to have pets. And the government's also considering requiring all leases to be open-ended. So it's not about punishment. It's about finding a new set of rules that works for both landlords and tenants and rebalances the relationship in some key ways. It just means that you feel a little bit safer going into a deal. It means that you can um, not feel like the rug's just going to be pulled out. The government says it will hire more people to investigate and prosecute those who don't follow the rules. But critics say the new laws will just hike rents and put people off becoming landlords. And that would be a real shame because right now we actually need more people providing rental properties. We need more properties for tenants to live in. It's much better if we encourage landlords into the market because of course that means more supply for renters, more choice for renters. It means actually that keeps down the, the cost of renting. But the government has one simple message for landlords who won't get on board. Put your money somewhere else. The proposed changes are out for consultation and will be in place by 2020. So a big move here from the government to try and uh, reassure renters, um, to try and give them some confidence about their living situation. And we just saw in that piece as well about how many people really are renting. It's a huge number. So this affects a lot of people here. And I think 
it's a really good move by this government to try and reassure people. But then you're starting to get this divide between renters and landlords, right? Yes. And I mean, just on that, I mean, rent bidding in particular. Mm. Um, so that obviously that's when, um, you know, one a house is offered at one price and then um, the, the, the landlord or the real estate agent sort of says, hey, if you pay extra, I'll give it to you. That's happened to me. Um, and granted, um, we were desperate to get that house. That's when, when um, me and my family, we lived in Auckland. Um, we were desperate to get the house. And so we did sort of pay a little bit extra in order to secure it. But I mean, that is the kind of desperation um, that some landlords and some real estate agents are um, playing on. Um, in terms and and to get that sort of uh, extra cash, um, so I think it's a good idea uh, that the government is sort of um, stepping in and sort of balancing out that relationship a bit more because um, for a long time, from a renter's perspective, it has been skewed um, towards uh, the landlord's um, benefit. And I think what's interesting is that um, you do, like you said, you mentioned, we've got to balance it. This is what the government says, you know, it's not about punishing landlords, it's about getting a good balance here. Because I think you've got people with slightly um, two schools of thoughts, and they're different type of landlords, don't forget. They're the mum and dad landlords, as National would call them, people who just own one or two properties who, you know, have moved from house to house. And those are the landlords that the, uh, that National say will just leave because it becomes too difficult. And then you've got the landlords who own 15, 20 properties, and and they're the ones, I think, um, that Phil Twyford is trying to clamp down on, the ones who, um, he said, a small minority that are bad. But while you're trying to deal with the sm- small minority, it's really important that you don't end up um, pushing out the good landlords. And it was interesting, I was talking to a few landlords after this piece, and they were just saying, well, you know, if you're a good landlord, you shouldn't be afraid of the rules. But if the rules start to impose, if they start to take away... Um, I guess, uh, any rights that you have, um, then that's when you start getting concerned. A lot of them were actually concerned about the pet rule that the, that a Labour want to bring in, um, which is that they want to give more rights to the renters to own pets. Now, obviously, for a lot of landlords, that's a big concern because it's their, this is what they would say, this is their house, this is their property. Why can't they you know, dictate the rules of that place. And so it's a really interesting thing that the government's going to try and walk here, that fine line between looking after the landlords that are good, but also protecting the rights of renters. Like you say, there are a lot of people renting and a lot of people who have been hard done by by the current system, which is old, and so it's about trying to find a way forward to that. And so there's a bit of consultation period for that. So it'll be interesting to see what they come out of at the very end of this. Absolutely. So that was Inside Parliament for this week. And it has been recess week, which means the politicians are not in the House. They're out in the electrics doing um, a bit of work. But they will be all back next week and the House will be sitting. And it'll be very interesting given all the different things that have happened this week. Great to have you with us. This was Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political story we've been covering on One News. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. It's available every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page and check us out on your favourite podcasting app.